want to talk first to the ladies uh, here tonight. We have any ladies here? Any ladies? Awesome. And a uh, few guy voices in there uh, as well. Confused? That's cool. Now, um, ladies, do you remember the first uh, baby doll that you had? <laughs> and I recognize when asking that question that there's multiple generations here, which means there have been multiple generations of baby dolls. And I would put them into one of two categories. Uh, the kind of baby dolls that can go number two and the kind of baby dolls that don't, right? So if you were, um, if you were, uh, you know, if you're 50 plus here seasoned, we love you, so glad you're here, you probably had a pretty plain Jane, porcelain, you know, raggedy Ann, you know, kind of a, a very non-battery movement baby doll, right? But as the generations have progressed and technology as well, now all of a sudden, uh, this is a picture actually of the Baby Alive doll. And it's really, really interesting because you, you, like, you feed this thing and, you know, with like some battery operation gears that I don't understand, then all of a sudden the baby does its business, you know? And so we've gone from like girls... Uh, just playing with dolls and, you know, making it talk and having fun and creating a voice for the baby. And now these babies have a voice of their own. Um, and it really creeps me out. I just want to be honest with you. Um, my daughter has so many baby dolls. I mean, she has uh, ones that talk, ones that walk. Uh, she has ones that go number two. Um, she, you know, and, and then she has this whole category of baby dolls that I just, I just call creepy. And... You know what I'm talking about? It's like, I'm pretty sure I've seen you on a scary movie recently, and now you're in my daughter's bedroom. I'm not sure how I feel about this, right? Um, Now, I've been thinking the last few days about the psychology of why girls, in particular, play with baby dolls, and boys don't seem to be drawn to that, okay? Is it because we've culturally shaped them that way? Is it because they come out of the womb wishing upon themselves a baby doll? We'd all agree boys are very different, okay? Um, Boys, their definition of a baby doll in my day was a G.I. Joe, okay? Um, G.I. Joe holding a machine gun, you know, smoking the sister's baby dolls. Like, that was my idea of fun, you know? And it doesn't matter, uh, again, I'm talking in generalities here, but, but boys, you give them a toy, and you'll notice this. In about 30 seconds, they're doing something destructive with it, Right? Like, they want to destroy, they want to conquer, they want to divide, uh, they want to pop its head off, right? That's what boys do in general. Girls, not so much, okay? They get that baby doll, and, and, and they, they coddle it, and they, they sing to it, you know, and they pray over it, weirdly. Um, and, right? They, they, like, they love this, they love this baby doll. And so the question is, like, like why is this that way? And I, I do think that there is this, um, this unbelievable thing, and I actually read some research on this, that, that girls are just, like, that's what, they're, that's what they want to do. That's their desire. They, they want to love and, and hold and, and watch girl movies with their baby dolls, and, you know, and, uh, like, that, that's, just who they, that's just who they are. So, that said, um, tonight, uh, what I've realized is, so far in Exodus, it's been about the bravery of women, Okay, like if you if you remember last week, we had some midwives that were incredibly brave. 
They looked at Pharaoh and they were like, I know you said to kill these babies that are being born on two stones. Remember that? But uh, no, we're not going to do that. Well, tonight is about some more brave women and babies and mothering and nursing. And so if you've ever watched Oprah, like tonight's your night. You know what I'm saying? Like if, you, if you've ever watched, like, I'm just kidding about that. I actually despise that. But, but it just, it's, it's going to be a very initially, very like motherly kind of night. And then it's going to take a drastic turn uh, away from that. So that said, you're intrigued, I think. Uh, open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 2. Now, so far, here's what we've seen. There is a massive population of Jews in Egypt. They got there uh, primarily because of Joseph. Joseph was one of uh, Jacob's 12 sons. And uh, he, um, being sold by his brothers, ends up in Egypt, rises to power, and then soon his lineage and generations after him are treated kindly in Egypt because of him. Soon, there arises a king that doesn't know of Joseph. And so last week what we saw is the Egyptian leadership has now changed their tune. They're not interested in being nice to the Jews anymore. Uh, So much so that we saw that they started treating them poorly by enslaving them, putting very harsh conditions on them. And then we saw the second uh, motive of their heart was to kill them off by having the midwives kill children. Uh, Tonight's text, though, um, we see how that action takes place. Is it going to play out? Is it really going to happen? Are these kids going to die? Let's begin here. uh, Chapter 2 of verse 1, the birth of Moses. Come on. This is like classic Bible right here. Let's do it. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took, uh, took as his wife a Levite woman. Now, I'm really drawn to the word took. This sounds very forceful, okay? Uh, I'm not sure when you give your engagement story, like the phrase took, yeah, I went and took her as my wife is in your vocabulary, you know? I just went over there, you know, I, I, you know, I grabbed her arm, I threw a ring on her finger, and here we are, you know, all the single ladies, you know, and then like all of a sudden they weren't. And like, it, so it, it just seems strange, but culturally I think this, I think this fits well. He sees a woman, pursues a woman, does Amram, several different kinds of way of saying his name. We find out in Exodus chapter 6. Um, now, his uh, wife is Jochebed, uh, uh, okay? Again, a couple different ways of saying that. And uh, so they're, they're from the Levite tribe, which is a very, very important distinction to make here from verse 1. Let's read verse 1 again. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. Now, the Levite tribe is going to be a tribe that is going to be distinguished from the other tribes of Israel. The Levite tribe is the priestly tribe. The Levite tribe will represent um, priest after priest, people who will uh, extend to God on behalf of the people. And so very interestingly enough, this baby, which we'll find out in verse 10, is named Moses, comes from the Levite tribe. Verse 2, the woman conceived, and by the way, hold on a second, hold on a second. Now, I, I did as much research as I could here, and I, I, couldn't, I couldn't nail it down specifically. But many commentators uh, think, that, uh, think that Moses' mom at this point 
is like really, really old, like beyond Sarah old at having this child, okay? I even saw one commentator who said she's 176, okay? Which explains, if that's the case, at least plus 100, that it seems like they get married and then they conceive, right? So you get this image of they get married and then she's like, look, I'm not getting any younger. You know, I'm like 176 here. Like, can we have some kids? Um, But Moses isn't the firstborn, which we'll also see as the story of Exodus goes on. Now, this motherly chapter uh, gets really interesting here in the middle of verse 2. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. Now, um, you have went to the hospital and you visited babies before, okay? I'm pretty sure there's no one in here who has not done that. You're in the elevator and you're really excited and uh, you get up to the room, Okay? And out comes this proud daddy and this, you know, most generally the woman still laying, you know, on the bed. And sure enough, you get a chance to hold this child. You're looking at it in the eyes. And no one lie. There have been times. There have been times. Not about your own. There have been times where you've looked and you've said, wow. Not so much. Like that, that, that child, I'm not sure what happened. Okay. Like, I pray things change, okay? But not off to a great start, okay? Now, you're laughing because it's true and you've done it. 100%. Every single one of us. Or you've gotten in the car with your spouse. Come on now. Come on now. And some of the first words out of your spouse's mouth, namely women, right? Man, I don't, is, that, is that child okay, you know? But in the room, but in the room, it's the cutest kid ever. Have you ever heard someone say, like, this child got beat with with an ugly stick in the room? No. No. In the room, it's like, this is the most beautiful baby ever. Like, and you're snapping pictures, mostly so you can show your friends later, like, look at this kid, you know. (laughs) But but Moses' mom sees that, that Moses is fine. So the question is, what does this mean? And the question is, because the writer of Exodus makes the distinction, does that mean if the baby wasn't fine that she was going to be okay killing him? That's the decree. Okay, the decree from Pharaoh is babies die. Boys, baby boys die. So if the baby wasn't fine, then what what was she going to do? Well, we can't can't answer that question. I'm not sure. But we can uh, define the word fine here. It means literally healthy. Okay, this isn't um, the baby came out looking like Fabio. This is just the, the baby... The baby was healthy. The baby seemed strong. Um, digging further, I was looking at the mortality rates of babies uh, in, uh, at 1500 B.C. Um, many, 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 many babies died after birth. Okay, just by natural causes. Not having, you know, the technology that we do today. So, it's also possible that, that this baby then survives the first whatever it is, few days, and She's like, okay, like, this is, this is going to be a good child. Well, the end of verse 2 says that she hides him for three months. And for those of you that have children, you understand. Uh, for those of you that have children that, that, aren't, that weren't or aren't colicky, a little bit different story in that situation. But the first three months are some of the easiest period uh, of child rearing, in, in my opinion. Okay, again, I didn't nurse a child. Okay, so in, in my humble opinion... Um, those are some of the easy months. Even, even if you're up late, 
because especially when you just have one, there's no other riffraff that's demanding your time. When you have one, I slept more, it seemed, because like when the baby is taking a nap in the afternoon, like you have an excuse to take a nap, right? If you're like, well, the baby's sleeping, I guess, you know, might as well cuddle up next to it, you know. And so, so in the first three months, it's kind of easy to hide the child. Not a lot going on. They're eating a lot. You know, things are happening naturally. They're beginning to grow. But then after three months, uh, if your child is like Moses, things begin to take a turn. When she could hide him no longer, kid starts crying, okay? Teeth start coming in. I don't know if, is that right? Is that right chronologically? Teeth and, when do teeth start coming in in child's gums? Six months, so don't just erase that comment. Um, <laughs> she couldn't hide him, that's the point. When she could hide him no longer, she took, uh, took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it in bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank, which we come to find out is the Nile. Now, this is, this is interesting. Um, should we go with the Ten Commandments portrayal of the basket? Here's, the ten, here's what the Ten Commandments portrayal is. Cue the picture there. Okay, that's from the, straight from the movie. That's a movie shot. So was that the basket? Uh, so then I just, having fun, I started Googling Moses' basket. Funny enough, people are trying to profit from this. Check this out. There's a, such a thing called a Moses basket or baby crib now that people sell, right? And af- upon further digging, digging then, then people are trying to sell this, which that I would buy for me. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like if I could sleep in that, I mean, that looks like a heavenly pillow of, you know, that's like angel's wings. Like, you know, just throw a diaper on me and an angel wing and I'm good to go, you know? Now, we have to wrestle with the implications. Please take that down, Andrew. We have to rep- wrestle with the implications of this. You're a mom, okay? After three months, you can't hide your baby. You fashion a wicker basket, for lack of a better term. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, the word basket here only shows up in one other section of Scripture. Any guesses? Any guesses? Genesis chapter 6 through Genesis chapter 9, which is the story of what? The story of Noah and the, and the ark. The same uh, Hebrew word for basket here means ark. Pretty sure it wasn't three-story. Uh, pretty sure this wasn't a three-story zoo, right? But but a very smaller version, same word, only time in the Old Testament that it shows up. So, she fashions this. She knows the decree of Pharaoh. Could you imagine, just for a second, putting your baby, three months old, you sang to this kid, you prayed with this kid, you feel connected with this child. As a mother, she's feeding this child, she's keeping this child alive. And because of the decree of Pharaoh, you place it in a basket, and you go up in the reeds of the Nile, and you set it in. Okay. Now, just for a second, could you just imagine that? Imagine the thoughts that would be going through your mind. Imagine the thoughts that you'd be feeling. Imagine the emotions. Now, she does this. And yes, it's incredibly hard, but she also does it in a very calculated way. And what I've learned about women is this is how they roll, okay? They do things, but they do it very often in a very calculated way. They know what they're doing, okay? Um, 
my wife is insanely wise. And what I've learned about her is, like, the more I learn about her, the more wise she is. She calculates precisely. Okay? So, yes, she put her child in a basket, set her in the reeds of the Nile, and let go. For all of us that would say, like, hey, there is no way I would ever even think about doing that. Look at her calculations. Verse 4. And his sister, Moses' sister, stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. So mom uh, went to sister, older sister of Moses, and said, hey, listen, uh, I'm going to have to stand back here, but I want you to, to follow this basket And I want you to report back to me what has happened. Now, I don't want a lesson for any stretch in seeing her calculations, her trust, we can assume, of the Lord at this point. I also want you to understand before we do any piece more of this text, is the detail that God provides in the Bible of his story of redemption is absolutely unbelievable. Moses, this baby, is going to be raised up as we watch this story progress to lead the Israelites out of slavery. And the detail that God goes to showing every facet of the story and how unpredictable and how unlikely And how at times irrational it is, for me, makes me appreciate the fact that God has given us this book to read. Again, and we talked about it a little bit last week. I know some of you are so intimidated by this book. And instead of seeing it as a a book of duty or a book of intimidation, can we just for a second thank God for providing it? That we get the chance to watch these crazy details unfold And in this case, God's plan of redemption for the nation of Israel from slavery only to be imagery for the redemption of sin that he would provide through Christ. Like it's beautiful. The detail is beautiful. And then you start to think about your story. How intricate your testimony is. How unlikely at times the facets of your life have come together and God saved you in this case and he rose up this person and all of a sudden you ran into this guy and then you started this job. Whatever the case may be, isn't your story unlikely to? Only to boast in Christ. So sister is watching the little ark go down the Nile. Now verse 5, another brave woman. Now the daughter of Pharaoh... And and by the way, by calculations, which I did with a calculator, um, anywhere from 90 to 100 daughters does Pharaoh have, okay? He's a fairly fertile individual, okay? These aren't all with one wife, as you can imagine, okay? So you're like, hold on a second. I'm not, you know, no, not all one wife. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. While her young women walked beside the river. So she carries with her, as most women do, to the bathroom and entourage. Okay? This is actually the beginnings of that. Okay? Uh, every other woman for the rest of history have gathered their foreknowledge from Pharaoh's daughter. She went to the bathroom with others. Seems like a good principle to live by. She saw the basket among the reeds 
and sent her servant woman, and she took it. So she sees a basket. She's not sure what it is, but she's curious. And out of her curiosity, she sends someone in her stead just in case it was dangerous. So she says, hey, you know, go see what's in that basket floating down the river. Now, this brings out a whole other point to Moses' mom's drop of the basket. It means not only did she calculate in her setting of the basket and watching and having her daughter watch the basket, but she also set it most probably in the path, in the flow, in the stream of what she could see uh, Egyptian women, or, or the palace even, potentially. So her drop was calculated. However, she's still, at this point, banking on maybe, just maybe, these Egyptian women will be merciful to my child. Though they have no reason to, in this case, her father has decreed its death. When she opened it, verse 6, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. And the scripture says that she took pity on him. Okay. Now, this is like a walk to remember or hope floats kind of moment right here, right? Uh, maybe a wrong movie, Sleepless in Seattle. I don't know. Like, what's, what's a good, like, baby, three minute of baby? I don't know. Like, this is, a, this, is a, this is a good movie baby moment, right? If you like babies, this is your moment, okay? All of a sudden, the servant woman brings the basket. Who knows what's in there? Could be bread, food, laundry. Like, we don't know. She opens it up, and there's a crying child. Now, the interesting thing is, the scripture says that she took pity We know this for sure. Pharaoh's daughter is not a fear of God. So pity to me was an interesting word. A pity to me assumes feeling sorry for. I want to make sure that you understand the difference between pity and mercy. I want to make sure you understand the difference between pity and grace. In my heart, I believe... When you're disconnected from God, when you don't have a relationship to the Lord, pity is in large part the emotion that you feel. You feel sorry for others. You feel that. People that don't know God certainly have emotions and certainly feel sorry. But grace and mercy at the depth of our understanding of God's grace and mercy is a completely different thing. And so in this moment, it's her, it's her pity, it's her feeling sorry for that causes her now to take action. Though her father has said, every baby dies. Do you understand? This woman, despite not being, being a God-fearing woman, is a brave woman. Is willing to look her father, Pharaoh, and say, look, I don't, you know, this baby, this baby is special. Or at least I'm willing to take pity on it. And then she says, look. This is one of the Hebrews' children. How does she recognize this? Is it because, you know, the the baby didn't have like a, you know, like a pyramid toy in his, in his, you know, bassinet? Like, like, like how does, how does she realize that that this is a, a, well, there must have been a, a fleshly, physical appearance difference. It's also possible that this isn't the first time that she's seen this. We're making some assumptions in making that statement, but it's also possible, plausible, that she has seen other children in the parents' attempt to save their kids send them down the river. 
or other desperate acts. So she says it's a child of the Hebrews. Then his sister, Moses' sister, look at this, another brave woman, okay? Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall, and this is just strange to me, okay? So the sister is like over in the reeds, okay? And, and all weeds would have worked, you know, that's the typical lineage, but actually it's reeds. So anyway, kind of fun, right? So she's over in the reeds. And so she sees all this taking place, and somehow she has the, the wherewithal to approach Pharaoh's daughter. And then she just, she throws down this idea. Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Like, that's their first conversation. Not, hi, how are you? Nice child here. It's like, hey, you want me to go find someone to nurse that kid? Right. Well, what kind of conversation, you know, between two women? Like, this is just a strange thing. But, very practically, Pharaoh's daughter isn't going to nurse the child. Okay. And so she comes up with a very incredible and improbable solution. And look at verse 8. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Now this is just an unbelievable story, right? Mom drops the basket. Basket with the baby going down the Nile. Pharaoh's daughter, who's supposed to kill the child, sends her servant to get the basket. Daughter comes over to Pharaoh's daughter. We should have someone nurse that. Now, the child is going to be taken back to its original birth mother. Are you kidding me? Right. Who can write this stuff? And I say only the Lord. We talk about God's sovereignty here. And for some of you, you start talking about sovereignty, you get nervous. Okay, it makes you sweat. Causes you to break out in hives. Okay. Um, Because... At the core of it, you're not really understanding the definition of sovereignty. In very basic terms, God's sovereignty is he rules and he reigns. Sovereignty is connected to a kingdom. Okay, we would say of a king, he's the sovereign king. He's sovereign over the land. He rules and he reigns. So when we talk about God's sovereignty... What we're saying at its core is that he rules and he reigns. Well, if he rules God and reigns over everything that he made, then that means he will, God, accomplish his desires. Now, people struggle with this. People say, well, well, didn't, didn't man infringe on God's plan? If that were true, then Jesus was an afterthought. If man confused God, if man threw off God, if man in sinning in the garden all of a sudden, you know, caused God to, whoa, 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 what happened here? This wasn't what I intended. No, God knows man will fall. That's why Jesus was present always. In other words, Jesus was always the plan of redemption and Moses was always the plan of redemption. That means when that baby got sat on that river that day, the plan for Moses to raise up as Egyptian for 40 years, then all of a sudden to go to the wilderness for 40 years, and to come back. All of that was already mapped out in God's grace and mercy for his people. Sovereignty. He rules and he reigns. If not, stuff is surprising God. If not, when you fail, God's like, I can't believe they did that again. 
Instead, God, omniscient, omnipresent, always, everywhere. When Moses got sat on that river that day, he was going to be the plan of redemption for the nation of Israel. So what about you? When you sat in that chair that day, when you had that conversation that day, when you met the person of your dreams that day, isn't it fun just to sit back and see how God has orchestrated your life to glorify himself? And if you're like, but but Mark, what are you trying to say? I'm trying to say that God is about his glory. That's what I'm trying to say. And because he rules and he reigns, then we all get to be the evidence of the the power of God's glory in our life. What I'm saying is, as improbable as the story is, it wasn't a baby in a basket floating down the river, hopeless and helpless. It was a baby in a basket under the hand of God, being directed to Pharaoh's daughter. And God said, all right. And now she's back. He's back, rather, in the arms of his mom. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. Some of your women are fairly jealous at this point, right? <laughs> Let's just call it what it is. Like, hold on a second. So it's a biblical principle to get paid to nurse. Or in this case, the daughter as well, and helping. So this child is going to be nursed by the mom, a beautiful moment. And then verse 10, and this is where we're going to spend most of our time here tonight. And I just, can I, can I pray? Can I pray now? Because I, like, I, I feel like there are some of you that have been waiting all of your life for verse 10. And that may sound strange now, but can I just pray? Is that cool? All right. God, I thank you for your, your text. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the power of it. And I thank you, God, for, for passages of scripture like we're getting ready to read. And I pray right now, God, that you would soften hearts. I pray, God, that we would be consumed right now with the reality of what you've done and what you're doing. So please, God, take us on a journey. Amen. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. Now, how much older? Um, by my estimation, the older here, it would, it would seem like, you know, maybe 10 or 11. But because nursing was connected to the mom, I, I think it's kind of like when the child was able to fend for itself. So let's, let's make a guess. Let's say anywhere between 2, 6, 7, something like that. The child grows older. We don't have the actual age. She was brought to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, which means son in Egyptian. In Hebrew, it means what's quoted here, because she said, I drew him out of the water. So the Hebrew is, she drew him out of the, or drew out of the water, and the Egyptian word is son. She gives him a name that means son. Now, I have, 
from the moment, from the get-go of reading this passage. There has been one very clear, streamlined thought. And I've had days and days and days now just to wrestle with it, to let it sink in on my heart. Listen, in this moment of time, how incredibly unlikely is it that an Egyptian woman would adopt a Jewish boy? The decree is to kill the boy. The decree is that the boy immediately needs to be murdered. Other children were dying, okay. How insanely, incredibly unlikely is it in this moment, given the cultural circumstance, for an Egyptian woman, Pharaoh's daughter no less, the one who by blood is connected to the one who made the decree and wants to make daddy happy, an Egyptian woman adopting a Jewish boy, And I have to tell you tonight, how insanely unlikely is it that a God would ever adopt a human? That a God would ever look at a man or a woman sitting in this room and say, you can be my son, you can be my daughter. How insanely unlikely would it be that God would humble himself, would get to a place in his rule and his reign where he would say, it's those people that I'm going to send my son to die for. I'd like to adopt those people. I'd like those people to come and live in my house. I'd like those people to come and experience my love. And I've for days and days and days been wrestling with this. It is insane for an Egyptian to adopt a Jew. How much greater is it then for a God to adopt one of us? So I pictured tonight an orphanage. In fact, we're born into it. Every single one of us, though we have earthly fathers and mothers, some of us know them better than others, some of us not at all. Because we're born into sin as sinners separated from God in the scheme of eternity we are born as orphans now when you use the term orphan things start to get very real for some of you some of you in the human level in your story in your testimony that's you You were at one point an orphan. You were adopted, brought into a home. Some of you guys have been pseudo-adopted by families and taken in and loved on because your parents were distant emotionally or spiritually. You know the power of when you didn't have that parental love and care. And then all of a sudden, though, it didn't make sense this family just took you in. And they said, look, like here, like here's a home, here's stability, here's hope, here's a place to like set your things, and here's a room to call your own. So I picture tonight a couple different groups of people. 
I picture tonight a group of people who God has said, walking in the orphanage, here I am. I want to take you home. I want to redeem your life. I want you to come stay with me. My motive is love. I have no reason to do this for my gain for you. You have nothing to offer me. Your wages, you're not going to work for your wages. You're not going to pay me rents. None of that. In fact, all of your rent's already been paid. So I just want you to come with me. And there's a group of people who, whether tonight is your first time ever hearing it, or for years and years and years, you spent 20, 25 years in the orphanage waiting for someone to come along and to say, now you're my son, now you're my daughter. And over and over and over, you've looked at God and you said, no. No. Everything you wanted in your heart was to be loved. Everything in your heart that you ever desired was to be cared for, to be nurtured, to have a place of your own, to feel like you were living in stable ground, to know there was going to be food on the table. And God has said, here I am. I've come. It's time now. Let's be together. Let's be in communion. Let's be in relationship. You can be in intimate connection with me. I'm the sovereign God. I rule and reign over it all. And you can have me. And yet over and over and over for years and years and years, you have said, I'd rather live as an orphan. And what I'm wondering is tonight, is it possible that tonight you say no more? Is it possible that tonight you say, I don't want to be alone anymore? Mark, you're telling me I can be adopted into God's family, like love, like one of his, yes, that's what I'm saying. The Bible says, believe in your heart and confess with your mouth and you will be saved. It's trusting that when you leave that orphanage, as it were, of sin, that he's got something better for you. It's trusting that what he did for you was real and life-changing and significant. Here's what Romans 8 says. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. When you have been adopted by God through Jesus, you haven't been adopted to then fearing loneliness again. To then fearing sin like you did before. You're adopted into something. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry. And I love what Paul says here, Abba, Father. In other words, the church, the gathering of, a believe, of believers, is a gathering of former orphans who are coming together to say, Abba, Father, thank you, God. You pulled us out. 
You've given us a home. You've given us life. You've given us love. You've been merciful and gracious. You brought us home, though you shouldn't have. I know it's unlikely that you would adopt me, that you would take me in all my sin, in all my wretchedness, but you have done it. And I know some of you for years and years and years said, he will not do that. My earthly father didn't. People have denied me all my life. There's no way God will receive me as a son or a daughter and take it from a son of his. And many other of those who have been adopted in the kingdom of God, I am a wretch. But through him, an heir, a son. I'm no longer in the orphanage of sin, my friends. I am now an heir to the kingdom of God through Christ. And so now I have, you have the chance to live like that, in light of that, because of that, and for the glory of the one who's pulled you out. And so, first, if that's you tonight, I'm just saying salvation, redemption of sins, forgiveness of sins, connection to God, it can happen right now. It's like there's no magical moment. It's just you saying, God, I want you now. Please adopt me. And then I think there's a whole other crew of people. You remembered. You remember how awesome it was when God came knocking, but you have forgotten it. You are adopted, but now you lack gratitude. He's not asking that you pay your wages, but... You're like the nine lepers who were healed and went away ungrateful. You've forgotten what he's pulled you out of. You've forgotten that you were in a random basket in a random river. And all of a sudden, a random person. And then pretty soon, God's brought you to this room. I'm saying tonight, there is an opportunity for us to awaken our hearts in gratitude because of being adopted sons and daughters. And so let me remind you then that the adoption, the orphanage that you've left, the parent in God that you have, the Savior in God that you have, to say he's the father to the fatherless is an understatement. And as for me and my house, I am tired of forgetting what he's done. And what I realize more and more, the more I remember, the more I worship. And I'm not talking about singing songs per se. I'm just talking about worshiping, obeying, falling at the face of God. The more I remember my adoption, the more I remember what it was like before then, the more I remember and I understand and I know what he's pulled me out of. So my friends, I'm just saying, has he pulled you out? Are you adopted? Are you a kid? Are you an heir? Then if so, my friends, it's time to celebrate. It's time to ask God to awaken, potentially, the dull, the dry heart that has lost the zeal, the passion, the remembrance of what God has done. If he's adopted you, then he's adopted you, and he's not sending you back. He's not sending you back. So let's celebrate that God tonight. What I picture here tonight is a whole bunch of orphans coming to the table 
to say thank you, God. What I picture here tonight is a room full of people that take a piece of the bread and they dip it in the cup in remembrance of an amazing father. What I picture here tonight is a room full of former orphans who are just broken in gratitude. And what I also picture here tonight is people who have never taken this meal before, who tonight, it's time. Communion is for believers. And you've never taken this meal. You've always felt too ashamed. You've always felt too sinful. You've always... And your trust of the Lord tonight, please come and join this meal. Embrace the salvation that's yours in Christ. God, I ask that you would help us understand just for a moment the depth and the power of who we are in you. God, for those that have forgotten it or have been living ungrateful, I pray that right now that you would remind them of the day that you said you're my son or you're my daughter. And God, for those even right now wrestling in their heart, I pray that you would stir in them that you are not myth or fairy tale or urban legend, but you are the sovereign king of all of your creation. So I want to invite you here tonight, former orphans who are now connected to God. To thank your father. Respond when you're ready.